Hey everybody, welcome to Myopia Movies. This week we talk signs and get into the auteur that is M. Night Shyamalan. One of those weird, kind of like early directors in my youth that I first acknowledged and sought out movies of because, you know, he was a special kind of director. Now, we are doing an M. Night Shyamalan month uh, and in honor of the M. Night Shyamalan month, we thought it would be quite the twist to start it in the middle of the month but we will still do four complete episodes. So if you want to watch along with us, we're doing, obviously, Signs this week, followed by next week, Lady in the Water, followed by The Village, followed by The Happening. So that's your whole lineup. Next week, if you want to join us and watch along with us, you'll be watching with us um, The Lady in the Water. In the meantime, though, we want to thank you for your comments, your reviews, your listens, your shares, We've uh, got this uh, entire season off to a really great start, and it's all because of you. So thanks for all you do, and keep sharing the show. Bye, guys. Welcome to NPR's Myopia Movies. This week, as the thunder roars, uh, we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of Signs. Uh, I am your host, Nick Hoffman, and my buddy here... Um, local author Matthew W. Quinn, and they're killing aliens out there. Yeah, um, which we see very little of. So we're doing science. It's 20 years old, and it's the kickoff of an end night Shyamalan month. But the twist is, it started mid-month, I guess. <laughs> what a twist! <laughs> dun 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 dun. Yeah. So, um, in honor of a panelist who will be on half of these episodes, Lauren Cannell, uh, who she says M Night is her favorite director. Um, we've decided to do four of them, and, you know, let's be blunt. Matt and I are similar in age. We were in college uh, in the mid-2000s, from 2003 to 2007. Um, and when the new M. Night movie came out, it was a big deal. I was in high school when Signs came out. I remember one of my church friends was absolutely terrified of it. It's a terrifying movie. Now, um, you know, just so we can get to it, of course... Uh, the first two movies don't count. I mean, of course, if you're a director, everything counts. Uh, but his first two movies are like rom-coms that he didn't write. You know, they're studio jobs. You, If you want to play the game, you've got to start somewhere. And the way he started, uh, I believe it's, isn't it like a Rosie O'Donnell movie? Uh, not There's, Flintstones. No, no, uh, Pray, uh, he did one called Praying with Anger which he also wrote and directed, but it's like a, I mean, no one's heard of this one. It's, it's, it is a full movie. It was in the 90s, though. So I imagine this was like his super early shit that didn't go anywhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's the lowest rated thing I've ever seen. An, alien Amer uh, an alienated Americanized teenager of East Indian heritage is sent back to India, where he discovers not only his roots, but a lot about himself. That Starring M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, I was about to say, is that like about his own life? Yeah, but the first movie he did that went anywhere um, is called White Awake, starring Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, and that's the only person you've heard of it. About a 10-year-old boy who goes on a search for God after his grandfather dies. It is kind of a schmaltzy comedy. Uh, and it's fine. And, I mean, Dennis Leary is in it, but it's exactly that. It's fine. It's the kind of thing that they would... But there's a lot of those kinds of movies when you were walking the shelves of Blockbuster. 
But I think what everyone thinks of as his first M. Night Shyamalan movie is 1999's The Sixth Sense. Because they see dead people. And when was the last time you saw Sixth Sense? Do you remember I don't the- think I've actually ever seen The Sixth no Sense. No kidding. It's just, I mean, I someone I think ruined the twist for me at some point. And, I would say you should still eh. watch it. Um, here's the thing. We both love Dennis, but he's an asshole who ruins things. Uh, he, he, he ruins the end of several, several shows and movies for me because he likes to talk and doesn't think about what he's saying. But I will say, in general... Is he going to be editing this one? Of course. <laughs> but, but what I was going to say is, gener- generally, if someone ruins the end of a movie, it doesn't ruin the movie for me necessarily. Because it's more like, so when's the twist going to happen? I know there's a twist. When, when's it going to happen? Um, that being said, uh, until The Happening, which I believe is his first R-rated movie, the thing about M. Night Shyamalan movies, they were creepy. They, they, and I would say they border between horror and thriller almost consistently. But they're all PG-13. And Sixth so, Sense was PG-13. So it's kind of like the Twilight Zone. Creepy as shit, but appropriate for kids. Um, I was thinking also uh, X-Files, right? It was on TV, and it was occasionally TV-14, but it was never M for Mature. But it was not, not even home? No. Oh. Fox would never have done that on primetime, right? So it's scary as hell. And I remember the twist in Sixth Sense, which Matt already alluded to, but at this point, it's 23 years old, guys. If you don't know the twist, it's, it's almost like... For all my students, if you will come across this, I'm sorry. We're destroying the movie you should. haven't seen. But what I will say is you still need to see it. The, telling you the twist is not going to ruin, ruin how phenomenal it is. Uh, later this... Yeah, Signs is creepy-ish. I should stop swearing so much. Signs is really creepy, even if you know how it ends. Well, and we can argue whether or not there's a twist or not, but it's 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 interesting. But I mean, like, we'll do later this year, this season, I guess, spoiler, Soylent Green. You've never seen Soylent Green. I can guarantee if you're listening to this, you have not seen Soylent Green. Maybe there's a few of you who are going to leave me weird passive-aggressive texts, uh, <laughs> tweets. But, like, you know the line, it's people, Soylent Green is people. The rest of the movie is phenomenal. And you just want to, and the whole mystery is when he's going to figure it out. That doesn't mean it's a bad movie. I knew the twist before I saw it, and it was great still. It's a good Charlton Heston. Um, You'll in- pry this jar of, me- of man meat from my cold, dead hands. Wait, am I doing Ronald Reagan or Charlton Heston? <laughs> what the hell? I'll tell you what, Ronnie Reagan, I mean, he wasn't president yet. He came out in the 70s. So if he decided to go back to acting like Arnold did after he was governor, and he's like, you know, you know, mommy, I think this is people. So the greenest people. I've, I've never. I haven't seen him in any movies. Was he big and buff? Because I thought Charlton Heston was big. No, he he. I mean, Charlton Heston was not buff in the way that. Well, I mean, let, like let, let's go back in no time. No one can be buff like Arnold is. No one's gonna be buff like Arnold because Arnold's Arnold, and God bless him. Uh, he recovered from his third heart surgery. He's good to go. Um, but like back then, remember like. The big fat guy with the barrel chest was also, like, the boss that you had to fight before you actually got to the end boss. So, like, Charlton Heston wasn't ripped. He was, like, super lean and muscular and could throw a good right hook, right? Mm. And Ronald Reagan, I mean, he generally played the guy in the suit. But, you know, the FBI guy could also always throw a punch, so I I can see it. Um, Anyway, after Sixth Sense, which made him a household name. Right, like it was huge. Uh, Haley Joel Osment, the kid, I believe, got an Academy Award nod. That was followed by Unbreakable, 
which also starred Bruce Willis and is a... So Unbreakable was before Signs. Yeah. Well, and then Signs was three. Ah. That's one hell of a run of movies. Uh, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs? The hell. Yeah, he rose high, but then uh, you know what happens. Well, we'll get there, because number four is The Village... Number five is Lady in the Water. Number six is The Happening. Number seven is The Last Airbender. And number eight is After Earth. And then they do th- and then he hits bottom and starts to rise again. Well, I was going to say, and then he doesn't direct any movies uh, for two years. Um, but what he's doing now is kind of small movies. Because then he did The Visit in 2015. And then he did Split and Glass. And by the way... Something my buddy Mark, Mark Bleichner, a friend of the show, said what he wanted to do was if something was a secret zombie movie. The closest I can think of is Shaun of the Dead, of course. But we're like, it's just a normal movie. Maybe like a a rom-com where people are in love and then all of a sudden third act zombies for no reason. It's like when we did Deep Rising and it starts out as a heist movie and then all of a sudden someone gets eaten off the toilet. Right? That's kind of what Split was. Um... Yeah, isn't, isn't Split the one where James McAvoy kidnaps some high school girls and he's got multiple personalities and one of them has superpowers for some reason? Yeah, and I will stop there so there's no spoilers, but it falls into the Unbreakable universe. Yeah, I know. the Split and Glass, aren't they part of a trilogy with Unbreakable? Correct. Uh, and then recently, Old, which I have not seen yet, though we were invited to the trade seating because we have a big enough movie podcast and both Daniel and I were like, no. But it turned out to be one of uh, Cabin's movies of the year. So I guess I'll have to go back and watch the, old. The glorious resurrection of M. Night Shyamalan. Can we get an amen? That's right. And you know what? Like, I, I, I always feel bad for you know young actors, young filmmakers, when they announce, well, they're going to be the next blank. And I remember them saying he was going to be the next Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, because it's just not fair to the dude well, who's learning how to do his craft. Well, he's not that old. I mean, if he keeps, if he gets back on his hot streak, streak, he might go for a while again. Like, how? I mean, did Hitchcock have any bad movies? Oh, I'm sure he did. Um, but, I'm sure he did. It's like that little inspirational quote they say that Babe Ruth struck out <laughs> ten thousand times, but he also hit like X many home runs. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I mean, don't cry for him. Like, he's doing fine. Uh. At this point, he's, uh, what, 52? Yeah, because these movies are all 20 years old, and he looks like he's 30, so that sounds about right. Yeah, he was born. Well, you are, we were doing this because, you know, all these movies are summer movies. Uh, he was born in August of uh, 1970, so... So he's 14 years older than we are. Well, no, but also, he just has the movies come out for his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's that on purpose. Yeah, I mean, why, that's the only thing he can figure out. All right, so, um, plot of science. Well, I mean, if you haven't seen it, it's about aliens, kind of. Uh, we have a family that's made up of Mel Gibson, who's the father. Uh, who's, in both senses of the word, although not in six months. Uh, yeah, so, okay, in a way that makes no sense. So, Mel Gibson is a father, a Catholic priest. Yeah, I think he's Episcopalian because he has kids. But he offers confession. Do Episcopalians do confession? Um, C.S. Lewis, toward the end of his life, was going to confession, but I don't know if it was at an Episcopal church. Do you call priests in the Episcopal church reverend or father? I don't know. I mean, my level of knowledge of Episcopalianism is world history class where you learn about, like, the the politics of it. 
Sure. But the vibe I got is it got more or less Protestant depending on who was king. Oh no, I get it. But that's that's what confused me because I'm like, it seems like in every way he's a Catholic priest. Because Cat- they call him they call him father. He's wearing the Roman collar, and people want to give him confession, and he gives absolution. Yeah, but which is Catholic. Yeah, I mean, unless but he has a wife who, <laughs> spoiler, M Night Shyamalan kills, <laughs> and he has two kids. Well, yeah, there are. I think the Catholic Church will take back, will take Anglican and Greek priests who are married, but that would be more obvious. They, that's something they would mention. Well, they do, and the pastor at my church is a married guy who's a Cuban, but that's more recent. And we don't have to get into theology right now, but them being perfectly in synchrony with the Anglican Church happened in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's I, very rare back then. Yeah, I went to an Anglo-Catholic service in England once. Like the Anglican church, there's charismatic Anglicans and Catholic Anglicans, just as long as you obey the king. But that's getting way into the weeds here. Yeah, because we're out, as we're told, we're 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, that too. He's in the countryside. I mean, you'd expect... No, a- I also want to point out, if you know anything about the Shamama verse. Uh, he's he, he doesn't like to drive far, so he's always within an hour drive of his home in Philadelphia. So it's like Stephen King. Everything's in Maine. Yes, but as a director, if you've seen his movies, you've seen Pennsylvania. Everything is filmed in Pennsylvania. Everything is made in Pennsylvania. Is the Philly Chamber of Commerce funding these movies? They better. It's the same way that Atlanta pays for every shit. Although, at least, you know what? Good on M. Night, because he says Pennsylvania... They're always pretending Marvel movies are happening in London or some crap instead of downtown Atlanta. Like, we were watching Black Panther. I saw it with our friend of the show, Zeus. And they said uh, it starts out with Killmonger stealing art from an African exhibit. At, I believe it's supposed to be uh, the London Museum, uh, the, the, the British Museum, from the British Museum. Yeah. And it's just the high museum of art. Yeah, the exterior is so <laughs> obvious. And Hunger Games are going up the elevator. Yeah. That's the Dragon Cod Hotel. It is. Um, and the, the mansion where they have the food is, of course, the Swan House attached to the Atlanta History Center. I know this because even though I haven't seen the movie, I had some uh, Belgian cousins visit. And the first thing, they, we were going to the Atlanta History Center. And the older one, Louise, she's uh, like a high school senior. She's 17. Practically jumped out the car to take a picture. She was so excited to see, oh, it's Hunger Games. It's a Hunger Games house. I'm like, yes, we're going to take a picture, I promise. ATL represent. Yeah, well, you know what? At least sometimes it actually gets to be represented. Um, as opposed to, like, watch the show Atlanta. If you haven't watched the show Atlanta, watch the show Atlanta. It's actually about being in Atlanta. Uh, also in this family is Joaquin Phoenix, which, I mean, I tell you, this is the heat that this movie has, right? Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is what, a year off of Gladiator? Pretty close, because Gladiator, I'm pretty sure, was when I was in high school and so was Signs, but I was a bit older when Signs came out. Yeah, Signs is uh, 2002. Um, I mean, for Mel Gibson at this point, I believe he already had won an Academy Award. He, what did he get an Academy Award for? Was uh, it Braveheart? Bra- oh, it was Braveheart. 1995, Braveheart. And in fact, I believe he won it for specifically the direction. Like, he, he directed it, right? Yeah. I, to, uh, yeah, he won for Braveheart for Best Picture, and he was a producer. Uh, but he also won it as a director. And then uh, Joaquin Phoenix at this point, um, this was a year after Gladiator. Well, I guess two years after Gladiator came out. And he's excellent in Gladiator, I'd say. 
Um, the two kids um, in it are uh, Rory Culkin playing yeah, the boy. Yeah, he looks so much like Macaulay Culkin, which makes sense. And uh, Abigail Breslin, who also has gone on to huge things, uh, Morgan and uh, Bo, right? Um, Abigail Breslin, also an Academy Award nominee. Um, so there you go. She's yeah, this... Good. Yeah, Shyamalan movies tend to have a lot of good star power, like The Village, which we're going to discuss. Stay tuned. A couple weeks, yeah. Um, has, you know, the we'll get to my opinion on the all the complicated twisting, but has a good cast. Lady in the Water, not great, but has a good cast. Well, I was going to say, I, I, I would guess, maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe the actors like working with him because yeah. he manages to pull, considering that, again, we kind of listed off his filmography, his first big smash success was, you know, um... Six Sense, and in Six Sense you have Bruce Willis, not exactly a guy who, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I know at the moment he's retired because he's having medical issues, but like he was notorious for being someone who didn't like working with directors. Yeah, the previous episode Hudson Hawk, he kept jacking with it too much, and we ended up with a film that was kind of a mess. Well, so and, Shyamalan could manage him. And I mean, in the last ten years, he's put out like thirty movies, none of which he's in for more than a scene because. Like, he clearly can turn it on when he wants to, but when he does it, he doesn't care. And yet, in the sixth sense, it's a masterpiece. And then he comes back for Unbreakable, which is incredible. It's a masterpiece. And so in this, when you have Mel Gibson, who, this is before the Troubles, before he got drunk and gave all that anti-Semitic tirade and called the cop sugar tits. Um, this is pre-sugar tits. Uh, <laughs> pre-sugar tits. It's like A.D. and B.C. That's right. <laughs> if Mel Gibson were Jesus. <laughs> well, he did that, too. He, he made was, that He movie. was Jesus' executive. <laughs> he was Jesus' executive producer. Well, what it means is those scenes where he's sitting in the director's chair talking to Jim Caviezel, it's really weird. You're talking about a God it, complex, a kind it, I have not seen it, in well, years. If he wanted to really hate himself, he could play Judas or Pilate. He's probably the right age to be pilot. You know what, though? Here's the thing. And I told this to Candace, my wife, when we were watching, when I was uh, talking to this about her. We didn't watch this one together. We watched those together. I wish I could like Mel Gibson because, I, I mean, again, you, you don't go on a huge anti-Semitic rant more than once. But he is so incredible in this movie. He's so good just in this movie. Just remember, actors are rarely the characters they portray. They pretend for a living. But like, it's it's everything. It's he shows emotion. He's so good in this. Um, anyway, so why is the brother Joaquin Phoenix there? Well, because the wife died in a horrible accident uh, not that long ago, six months before. We're yeah. told. Yeah, because M Night Shyamalan is like, I keep looking under the phone to call you. I've been doing it for six months. It, the guilt complex and all that gets kind of weird. Exactly. So. Do you think you could distill a plot of the movie? Our hero, Mel Gibson, is an apparently Episcopal priest who has lost his faith after his wife is killed in a car accident in this bizarre and convoluted way we'll get to later. And then suddenly, crop circles. Anybody, little kid in the early 90s, all that in search of stuff, remember crop circles? Oh, I do. I love it. Oh. And, and then you start seeing lights in the sky and random creepy green dudes skulking around the farm and disrupting a kid's birthday party in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And to quote that dude on the History Channel with the freaky hair, it's aliens. That's but right. it's really focused on like 
Mel Gibson's family. You know, Mel Gibson, his two kids, and his his brother, and the townspeople who keep insisting on calling him father, even though he's like, I don't believe in God. And he's very clear about that. And I will say, it's not ever cheesy. It's in a tragic, horrible way. Like, he's like, please stop calling me father. Like, because a father is someone you should look up to, and he feels like you shouldn't look up to him anymore. Right? And it's, that that's the thing that's interesting. I will say, too, I, just... I like this movie, Matt. Something you said on the, you know, the various group feeds, which is really important, is... Guys, just come do it with us. These movies are all under a hundred minutes, like yeah. right at like it. And he does so. And the first twenty minutes of this movie, we're not sure what's really going on, but the tension is there immediately. And there's maybe thirty lines of dialogue. There's a monster outside my window. Can I have some water? Is that that's when the fun starts? But that's like almost twenty minutes in. I mean, but yeah, but then, and then before that, you have the scene where the dog attacks the little sister and big brother kills it which i think should have been a bigger deal well i mean w w like the very beginning is um like everyone's asleep we, we start out and it's so funny because this breaks a lot of screenplay rules uh, i forget who it is i think it's mckee uh one of those big you know script guys never never start your movie with your main character waking up you know the character wakes up um, we literally show his wall. I wrote this down. They show the wall of his uh, bedroom, and there was the outline of a cross because he's taken the crucifix off his wall. Um, but essentially, like it's like he had a bad dream in the middle of the night, but we know that it's not his dream because Joaquin Phoenix also falls out of bed. So there must have been a noise. There must have been something. Dun, 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 dun. But when they wake up in the morning, he can't find his kids. Um, which is when we get the first crop, uh, crop circle. Um, because he ru they run into the cornfield. Uh, him and Joaquin Phoenix, he finds the kids. And they are outside this giant circle. And again, it's all in the acting. It's all in the characters. Because crop circles are nothing. Right? But Mel Gibson is clearly unsettled by this. There's no, they don't even have like a steady cam. We fly to a helicopter shot of a bunch of circles and the dogs freaking out. It's yeah. great. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, this the, the Shyamalan movies are good and tight and well made. Well, and I will say the problems just come in later. The the problems I think are they're all based on the script. He 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 attracts actors who clearly are impressed by him. And he can nail shots. I'm sorry. Like, when the girl says there's something, there's a monster outside my room, and uh, can I have a glass of water? Fine. He's a dad. He's used to the kid having bad dreams. And he handles it well. But then he's staring out the wall, you know, out the window at the barn nearby. The barn that I believe is where um, Joaquin Phoenix is staying, right? And there's just a dude behind the chimney. Just for half a second. Yeah, I didn't see that the first time, but everyone reacted to it, so I assumed there was something there. Yeah. But that, that scene is so dark. Yeah, it's there. I mean, they're just... The way he can frame a shot, it's, it's, it's one of those things like... When we talk about his bad movies later this month, it's hard to point out why they are bad. The acting in this is incredible. The premise of it is so simple, because guess what? It's not about the aliens. 
movie we've talked about doing, we're probably not going to do this season, but we might do soon, is that Tom Cruise War of the World movie. Remember that? The Steven Spielberg? Mm -hmm. It's about as overstuffed as a movie can be. And guess what? It's about the aliens and the aliens and how one guy kind of sort of saves the day, but not really because you can't save the day I against aliens. Well, I think it's more about how he stops being a failure as a dad. Yes, but this movie does it so much better in every possible sense of the word. And we'll get to the emotional end of this movie later. Um, but, I mean, a after the, the UFO does the thing, we don't know really what a UFO is yet. We don't know what if it is a UFO. The first sign we get that something weird is happening is, I mean, M. Night, or M. Night, uh, Mel Gibson calls the cops, you know, the local sheriff, to see what's going on. Uh, but the dogs start acting weird. In particular, the dog starts snipping and attacking the kids. Yeah, and Big Brother straight up kills it with a pitchfork, which they seem to gloss over pretty quickly. You know, oh, your beloved family pet went berserk on your sister and you killed it, or at least it jumped on you and you had the pitchfork and died. Oh, we have other things to do. Let's go get a bookstore. But if I recall correctly, they also deal with the other dog. I think they put it in the shed or something. They lock it outside so it gets murdered later. Yeah, you just hear it, you know, the... Yeah. yeah. But, but to your point, though, this is excellent minimal filmmaking, right? It's all about hearing and seeing, but not telling. Like, there's not a lot of description. It's very tight. It's well-constructed, right? Like, we get the steady cam shots, we get the running shots, and he's just holding a handy cam, and he's jogging, and when Mel Gibson sees the dog dead with a knife in its neck or whatever, you know... He he doesn't know what to, to make of it, which is interesting, right? Because do you punish the kid? I was wondering if maybe they'd want to take him to a doctor or something. The kid? You know, in case he's well, traumatized by having to kill the dog. Uh, there's no time. Aliens are coming. I, I know that. I mean, it seems like they just don't even care anymore, which is kind of... But, eh, whatever. Well, he does go and take care of the daughter, if I recall correctly. Okay. Um, But, like... All of this is like done not only well but very quickly because the t the the sheriff is like you know animals have been going crazy all over town mm -hmm. we don't know exactly what's going on but it happens so quickly that even Joaquin Phoenix is inside still making breakfast or whatever making lunch yeah but it's 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 incredible so um, we're now I guess to the scene where there's a monster on the roof yeah Mel Gibson is a dude who's trying to be angry and violent and not being very good at it you know i'm angry right now yeah so i'm um, really angry so what's going on is they think it's some neighborhood some local kids right who are i mean it's sounds like they got a rep. tipping it sounds like they've got a rep right i mean that's what they're saying that they, they've destroyed crops before and he saw them messing around in the bar and so he's like look Look, just come outside with me. Yell like you're mad and you got a gun. He goes, I don't have a gun. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not an angry person, which is also something he's dealing with, which we'll get to. Um, but just go outside and swear like crazy, and we'll scare the people off. Okay. They run outside because Mel Gibson at this point has seen the thing on the roof, um, and it's faster than anything. Right, it's running like hell. It outruns Joaquin Phoenix, who we find out later is a former baseball player. Uh, it outruns Mel Gibson, um, and 
it all has to do with this terrifying cornfield. It's such a good use. And again, I don't know how much this movie cost to make. I imagine it was a lot because you're talking about Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix and stuff, right? And they were expensive actors at the time. But like, there's not a lot of special effects on screen until there is, and some of them are pretty crappy. Yeah. But like, it's great when you don't see them. It's the the, the the Spielberg school of, you know, don't show the shark unless you have to show the shark. Yeah, what you imagine is worse. And also the sound, like when, when either it's creepy music or it's dead silent. The sound is so effective. I, mean, I know this podcast, we make fun of movies, but we'll get to that later. This stuff I liked a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, and they, they use a lot of minimal score. A lot of this movie has no background music and it slowly builds throughout the whole thing. Um... And then things start to turn, like I said, around 20 minutes in because the kid comes in and goes, the, the, the crop circles are on the TV um, and that they're on every channel. And it turns out that around the world, these crop circles are appearing and we're, you know, we're cutting to India, we're cutting to South America, we're cutting all over the world. And you have some old guy who looks like a melted Michael Caine saying, you know, these are alien signals and they're communicating. And we're just like, okay. Um, and I believe around here, too, this is when we're introduced to the, you know, Chekhov's gun, which is the kid's inhaler. Mm-hmm. As he's panicking, he takes a puff of albuterol, which helps keep him from having an asthma attack. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, if you have not seen this, if you haven't seen it, stop now and watch this movie. <laughs> like, honestly, it's really good. Um, but he is like... As he's panicking, he's taking a puff of the albuterol to help him breathe. You know, like scene, right? Now, um, what we're going to see, I mean, and this is it. The the movie is incredibly well paced uh, because they're worried that the kids are traumatized, that, you know, the boy had to take what I imagine is a barbecue implement and kill his dog. And the girl was the one who was attacked, so she's traumatized. So, like, let's go to town. Uh, I'm sick of you kids watching TV all day. Let's do something fun. And they put on the radio, and the radio's like, aliens! <laughs> and so he's like, let's not listen to the radio either. And they end up in this beautiful Pennsylvania town. And you know how it's Pennsylvania? Because it's M. Night Shyamalan. And only Pennsylvania exists. They should build They should build a statue of him. You know what? Like Albuquerque, they built a statue of, of Walter White and Jesse Pinkman because, you know, Breaking Bad, Reminder of the World, Albuquerque exists. That's right. So it's built a heroic statue of M. Night Shyamalan. It was funny. At one point, we, you had uh, expressed interest in being a Hollywood writer, and you didn't know if you wanted to move to Hollywood and that kind of thing. M. Night figured it out, man. He's never more than half an hour from his home That's well, in well, Pennsylvania. Now, now Hollywood has come to me. That's right. That's right. And he's like, he's like, you know, guys, I guess we could just open a theater. And then maybe a film studio right here in Philadelphia. You sound like H.W. Bush. I'll tell you what, you would though. It would be prudent to build a movie st- studio right here in uh, Philadelphia. Bar, well, he bar. has a little bit more of a Connecticut to him. You know, bar. I'm sorry. I uh, but, bombed all those kids. Uh, but M. Night really does project like that. He's right. Like He's like, I'm sorry I killed them. You know, had I fallen asleep 10 minutes earlier or 10 minutes later at the wheel, they would have been alive. It's as though fate chose them to die. And you're just like, all right, creepy veterinarian. Yeah, he didn't sound like someone who's 
sorry for what he did. Yeah. And I mean, all mournful. It's a very strange delivery. Well, he already started in that movie, The Kid from India, or whatever the hell that nonsense was called that never... He he's a very strange actor. Um, we'll get we'll get into that with Lady in the Water and in the Village and in the Happening. He's well, in all of his movies. Yeah, but yeah, but in, the, in Lady in the Water, he plays such a major character. That's why the critics hated it a lot. Was because he made himself a major part of the plot. And we'll get there. But he also has a character who's a film critic who gets everything wrong and then dies. If I recall correctly, uh, I don't think it's. He does die, but more on that later. Yeah, we'll get there. Um, while they're in town, three things are happening. They're going to go get pizza. Uh, the, the girl, I think, disappears from the face of the earth for a minute. But uh, Mel Gibson is going to get his son's prescription for, you know, it's his lung medicine. It's his uh, albuterol. Um, and <laughs> the woman at the pharmacy not only calls him father, but wants to confess. And that takes like 30 minutes. Yeah, he gets kind of held up. Um, we get Joaquin Phoenix's backstory, which is that he was like an incredible baseball player. He has the record for the longest home run in history and the most ho- hits in history, but also uh, the most strikeouts ever. Because yeah, apparently he just keeps swinging no matter what. Yeah. Um, Chekhov's gone. We'll get there. Um, uh, yeah, they're hanging around. It looks like an army recruiter's office yeah he I, for some reason he goes to an army recruitment office and i don't that's never explained uh, but then um the kid rory of rory culkin is the actor his name is morgan goes to the local bookstore to see if they have any books about aliens and i'm sure it's a reputable book it's one filled with pictures that- this is also where we get my favorite crazy old bookman who's like this is a Aliens aren't real. This is a conspiracy to sell sodas. And he's just counting the soda commercials he sees while watching, you know, Fox News or whatever he's watching. Yeah, we'll get to it later. But someone had a really good idea about soda and how it should have played in the ending. But we digress. Anyway, so they end up at the pizzeria place. They get some pizza pie. And, like, everyone's freaking out at this point because um, they haven't been watching TV. But whenever they see TV, it's bad. Um, but at this point, we are introduced to M. Night Shyamalan, who's playing the, a veterinarian uh, who he drives by, takes one look at Mel Gibson, and he gets the hell out of there. And then the son is like, is that him? Yeah, he, yeah <laughs> veterinarians wake up one night, and, the, and you know, Morgan's be there with a Jason mask on and a knife. <laughs> I mean, also, like, there's a lot of things in this that, I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially a, a, a sci-fi, light sci-fi movie. Very light on the sci-fi. Um, because like we said, in the end, it's kind of not really about aliens. Had you made it the exact same thing, but it was about a serial killer hunting a family and he was protecting his family, it's kind of the same movie, except for without the global panic side of it. Um, but what I was going to say was, M. Night Shyamalan being the dude who kills his family is kind of like such like a wonderful little piece to resistance because it's like i'm gonna walk in and pick up my piece oh shit and then he just drives away it's kind of incredible um i guess the last thing we should introduce before the rest of the movie unfolds is um after the, the 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 creature on the roof which they think is just a kid even though it runs too fast uh, while they're waiting for Mel Gibson, who's, you know, helping comfort the daughter, um, the boy, Morgan, is playing with the cop's radio, like her walkie-talkie. 
and he, she goes, you know, do you have a baby monitor? You know, an old baby monitor. If you have one, it will intercept some of these signals so you can listen into the conversation. Yeah, that the baby monitor becomes a big deal later on. Well, that's what happens now. After they come home is when they first, the baby monitor starts freaking out and not just hearing, you know, static kind of weird, specific static, but when they get out of the car, Mel Gibson's like, I want you to stop listening to this, this is nonsense. And then it sounds like there's a conversation happening in some nonsense language. And that's when everyone starts freaking out. Like, yeah. cause like, by this point, we're like a half hour in, and now it's not just something weird is going on, but specifically, is it aliens? It's aliens, right? Gotta get that hair up. Well, they put on tinfoil hats, which is kind of the best. <laughs> yeah, that scene was pretty funny. First the kid, suddenly you see Uncle Merrill with a tinfoil hat on, too. Well, and it's funny because the uncle very early on goes, it's just some nerds doing nerd things. Because they never had girlfriends. Because they never had girlfriends. It's very specific. And then all of a sudden, when he starts buying into this crap, he, he goes whole hog real fast. And it's kind of the best part. Um, at least... And I will give it to M. Night often. Um, the reason it's not a horror movie is there is genuine levity. And that's part of it. Like, there is light moments that make it great. Because what is this kid doing? He's hawking, he's fucking holding a baby monitor up to the sky. Uh, and they're listening to aliens talk. It's very cartoonish. Now, it's filmed in an intense way. And, like... Soon after, we get the second dog is, like, freaking out because of the aliens so much that Mel Gibson doesn't want to even feed her. Right? Like, like... And it, what's interesting to me, what I think is well done, is, to me, what the movie is about is if something awful happens, like a relative dies, like, a, like your wife, the thing you're going to tell your kids is, don't worry, I will protect you. I'm not going to let something like this happen to you. And this is something completely out of Mel Gibson's control. How do you be a good father then? That's what it's about. If there's a if your daughter is scared because there's a monster under the bed, you've got to look under the bed because you have to be the brave one. How do you be a brave one when the world is falling apart? And that's kind of what this movie's about cuz after he feeds the dog, he hears that kind of sound behind him. And so we just have this, again, it's great filmmaking, but there's a cornfield. He has a very high but narrow intensity flashlight, and he's walking around, and there's just a shadow that keeps passing him. And then there's the green foot, and that's when people screamed. This is terrifying. This is truly horrifying. Because, again, like, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I've never come across an alien. But, like, I've been in dark places where you feel something move behind you, and it scares the ever-loving hell out of you. But for me, of course, it's a tactile sensation. They managed to convey that fucking tactile sensation in a movie, and then, like you said, and then all of a sudden you see a leg <laughs> stepping through the field, and it looks great against the green, but also greener than the ground. And then what does he do? It's a scene, to me, very reminiscent of The Shining, where when Torrance is freaking out and has gone past the point of no return, he's seen the beautiful naked woman turn into the horrifying old rotted corpse lady. He re-enters the room and is just silent. And Mel Gibson re-enters the room, he sits down at the kitchen table, and the kids have been singing and doing the dishes, and the life is sucked out of the room. Because this movie 
cares about him trying to be a protector to the family in a role he cannot play. And it's fantastic. <laughs> this is really good filmmaking. I wish he continued making good movies. Um, I'm sorry, Matt. I feel like I've talked too long. How are you? <laughs> well, um, then you see the all the stuff he's been holding back start to implode because I think like the invasion starts, but nothing has happened to their house yet. So he's like, okay, let's make all what we want to eat for dinner. And well, we're, not, we're not quite to the dinner scene oh, yet. Wait, oh, I forgot. Um, but the, this vet, is where, the, the veterinarian's house. Well, but this is where you get the right line, which is that f for the previous 40 minutes of the movie, they haven't been watching TV, they haven't been listening to the radio, but now that he's seen the gray walk through his field, he's like, maybe we should turn the TV back on. And this is when we get the lights in the, so in the sky, yeah, the, which is actually... Yeah, the Mexico City scene. Which is excellent, um, but for those of you who are into UFO stuff, this is a um, him essentially recreating a picture of something that really happened, which you can look up called the Phoenix Lights, um, where a whole bunch of lights in what looks like a giant flying V appears over a major city and just kind of hovers there and stops over the city. It, it, it's something that happened in the mid to late 90s. Um, and M. Night does a good job of recreating it here in very unsettling ways. Um, and apparently a bird had flown into it and we get that the next dead, morning. So yeah. something's there. Although I will say this is what happens in between is one of the most important dialogues of the movie where him and Joaquim are holding the kids who are asleep and terrified. Right. And they're talking about what faith means. Do you believe in God anymore? Um, and you know, and Mel Gibson's having a really hard time with his faith and he wants to believe in each other, but now these aliens have made it even worse. When I teach uh, U.S. history, one of the first things I, I bring up is this idea of aliens. Um, I'm like, look, what if, you know, someone who looked humanish um, arrived on our shores and uh, they have better technology than we do? And what do you think that would mean for our society? What does that mean for our world? And, you know, I use that as a metaphor to talk about what it was like when the Spaniards arrived in the Caribbean. Um, but, like, that's kind of the discussion they're having. Like, does this change your religion? Does this change who we are? Does this change your beliefs? If we were supposed to be created in God's image and likeness, what does that mean to these things? And, you know, he's trying to comfort Phoenix, but he knows, he, but both of them know that you can't comfort your way out of something this horrifying. Is that where he says that the wife's last words were swing away. He was saying it was nothing more than just brain spasming as she died. Um, yes, and then it will come back later. Yeah. In a, in a very positive way. Um, yeah. And then we get the birthday party? Well, kind of. Uh, then we, we get... Um, he starts having his dreams. Every time he's, has, he's asleep for the rest of the movie, we get more and more of the car accident scene where his wife dies. And this is the first time that happens where you can't see her. Uh, but when he wakes up, the kids are hiding in the clot in uh, the kid girl's room with tinfoil hats on, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix has moved the TV in the closet because the kids keep trying to watch it. And that's when the... Yeah, because he's in the tea closet watching the TV, and then I think that's when the birthday party thing, and that's when he's in the closet screaming. Well, and I'll tell you, last night when I saw it, it still scared the hell out of me. Because, like, the first thing we get is Joaquin Phoenix talking about how, like, 
The aliens are still there. They're just invisible. They figured out a way to cloak. Uh, we don't know how many there are now because we can't detect them. But on, over Mexico City, the there was a bird who flew into one and f landed, and it looked like its head had been crushed in. Uh, and Mel Gibson goes, great, um, whatever. This is the point where he gets the call from M. Night Shyamalan, but there's no answer. And he goes, I think it's from Dr. What's-his-name. I think it's Reddy. Yeah, Dr. Reddy. I almost said Dr. Rex, and I just imagined T-Rex from Toy Story. Hi! Better actor. Um, but I'm, try I'm trying to imagine the T-Rex saying, Hi, I fell asleep with a wheel and hit your wife by accident. About in that same, voice about the same scene he shows up at the, the the vet's house right and the house has been ransacked right and he goes i caught one of them and i put them in the pantry or the basement or something it was a pantry yeah and and he seems to have figured out this is important later i'm going to the lake because they don't like water yeah he goes wherever they're appearing they're not near water so i assume that they're not near water um and the guy is like caked in blood like, because he apparently, like, really, I don't know if he beat up the thing or the thing beat the crap out of him. We don't really know. He's just trapped in the guy's house. He's trapped in the closet. But he, he goes, I'm going to go to the lake because wherever they're appearing, they're not near water. And then he just drives off. He drives out of the movie, which is fine. I, M. Night Shyamalan, I don't think, is a great actor. It's after this, though, that we get the Brazilian birthday party scene. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> out of context, it's still horrifying. It's it's one of the best shot. It's what, thirty seconds long, not even like unprovoked. It's just truly horrifying. The kids freaking out, the 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 camera running around, and this thing just coming out. It's so. Good. Yeah, I said the little green man, the big the said the little little green man. It's the big green men. It's a gray. It's and literally he's, gray. And yeah. he's jacking your birthday cake. Because the kids are all hiding in the house, and the birthday cake is just sitting there on the porch. And, and, and like, and Phoenix like freaks out, which you would, of course. And then it rewinds and it pauses right on this like gray guy's face, and it's really just we have now seen the enemy, right? That's the point of it. But it's just it's so good. I, this was the one scene I remembered verbatim from seeing it, whatever, twenty years ago when I first saw it. Uh, probably not quite twenty. I probably saw it. 2004, 18. I saw it 18 years ago for the first time or whatever. Uh, it's great. It's perfect. It scared the hell out of me. It scared the hell out of me again when I saw it last night. It's really well, or two nights ago. It's so good. Um, anyway, Bill Gibson goes to see the thing in the closet. <laughs> yeah, and he's clever about it. Like, he has like a butcher knife and he's like trying to reflect into the closet like a mirror. Yeah, he, and there's nothing there at first. Because apparently they're they can camouflage themselves, we're told. Uh, uh, it, at one point, like a chameleon, when it's holding a, a character, we'll get to it later, it colors itself the same as the kid's uh, shirt. So it can camouflage itself. So Mel Gibson grabs the chef's knife and sticks it under, and it's reflective. Uh, and then he cuts off <laughs> the alien fingers. Yeah, attack of the, of the CGI claws. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I don't think the claws were CGI. But I think they they looked CGI. I don't remember it looking kind of fake. They come out from under the door and try to grab hold of him, and he takes the butcher knife and chop, chop. Yeah, he cuts them off. Um, they kind of wiggly-biggly. Yeah, there's like a little thing, and he like slices it. It's really something. Salami time, bitches. Oh, gross. Uh, he didn't cut that off the alien, not yet. You're the one who said it. <laughs> um, 
but at this point, the full-out invasion starts for the last little bit of this movie. Um, and, and the kids have won. Joaquin Phoenix is also wearing one of his hats. He's wearing an aluminum foil hat, which is good. I don't know. This, this is when they start barricading the house. This is when he's trying to comfort the kids. And this is when they have, like you said, their last meal. Where they just make everything that everyone wants to eat. You know, and he makes, like, uh, teriyaki chicken. And they make spaghetti and meatballs. And he makes uh, mashed potatoes and gravy. And he makes... He wants a cheeseburger, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's set up by you depicts the leftovers from every meal. Yeah, like the different utensils and tools. I mean, and, and to me, this is the maybe the emotional core of the movie, which is he's tried so long to hold it together, and he's and he breaks. He does, and the kids say, "You're the reason mom is dead," and he 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 breaks down, and he should. And to me, maybe. The fact that this came out in 2002 should be giving it away. I don't know, like, why a knight wrote anything. I think he's a he's an interesting idea guy. But, like, to me, this must have been what it was like to be a parent after 9-11. There's nothing you can do, so you're trying to hold it together for your kids. And you just can't. There's, there's nothing you can do to make it go away. And we see that because while they're eating dinner, just like in fucking Home Alone, the second the clock strikes dinner time, they start hearing the aliens outside the home. Yeah, they kill. They straight up kill the dog. Like you hear the dog barking and screaming, and then silence. But what's great about it is everything you described. We don't need to see anything. So much of it is in the sound mix. So much of it is in the subtlety. This movie is so subtle at points. And then they start click clack clicking on the roof. And I don't emote as easily as some of our colleagues do. And that gave me the willies. It does. I mean, it sounds like a fucking cicada in your house. And as someone who went to Ohio, like cicadas are terrifying. So I was already freaking out. But also, like, they're desperately trying to seal up everything. They, they, you know, I mean, it's standard, you know, standard zombie scene. This could have been directed by Raimi for a second. They're hammering shit on the doors, on the windows, and all of a sudden they realize, oh, crap, we forgot the attic. And they hear the thud and the scurrying coming from the attic door. And they're like, all right, everyone to the basement. And the last 20 minutes of this movie is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. And if you have not stopped to move on... Stop now, because we're going to talk about it. We are. We have to. But everything about this is a masterpiece of filmmaking. Like, I could show this in film class when I teach it, because what do you need? This is the best use of lighting. He's like, we need something to prop under the door. The the uncle goes, oh, there's an axe right here. And he swings back too hard and shatters the light bulb. So everything now is in darkness except for one fucking flashlight. And then things start to get really freaky. (laughs) Because everyone's rationalizing it out. The aliens are making noise. Why aren't they making noise? But they're not trying to push open the door. Oh, shit, there must be another way in here. Yeah, the coal chute. They turn around the flashlight, little brother, big brother, staying up against a grid, and you see the fingers coming through. And grab the kid by the neck. And I will say, too, what's neat about this is something that filmmakers don't do anymore. Everything is so fucking well lit. I don't like modern horror movies for a lot of reasons. A lot of it's torture porny, which I don't like. But, like, 
sometimes they're hunting for the killer and it's like the moon is exploding or something. It's night and you can see everything. No, if you told me there was no lights on set except for the flashlights, I'd believe you. Because this scene is dark, it is terrifying, and as they're figuring shit out, the sound drops out. Yeah, so we, yeah, so we don't really see what exactly happens to you know the alien in the coal chute that's getting touchy-touchy with the boy. Beyond the boy ends up having an asthma attack. Well, what we, we what we're trying to get, I guess, and I don't know if this is true, but they kind of allude to it. The alien wants revenge on John Travolta. John Travolta <laughs> on Mel Gibson. He's an alien on Mel Gibson for cutting off its fingers. So it was the same alien the entire time. Well, at the end, we know it is. That's established. Um, because they show his neck around, his hand around the boy's neck, and he's missing the two fingers. Ah. Uh. So, but like that would, it's because, well, we'll get there. But we see the coal shoot, the kid gets strangled, and this is, again, to be such a well directed scene. Because the flashlight gets dropped. And we see, like, the girl cowering in the corner wearing, you know, what my daughter has, which is, like, pajamas that look kind of like a princess dress from a Disney movie. But then we realize we don't... We see Joaquin Phoenix piling up, like, dog food and, like, coal and everything against the coal chute, but we don't see Mel Gibson and the boy. And it's because the boy is, well, dying, I guess. It's, yeah. it's terrifying. Yeah, he's having an asthma attack in the... They're, the, the dad, they don't have his medicine. He's trying to calm him yeah. down. And then apparently this goes on for several hours. Well, and that's what the, the, the line is. Like, his medicine's upstairs. Uh-oh. Well, and then the music drops out. It's truly terrifying. Like, for a horror movie, this has a very low body count. At this point, we've seen one dog dead and a mom who died before the movie started. But the, the next possible death is this kid and what does the dad say he starts yelling at god right like it's perfect character development does he believe in god at the end of this well that's kind of the twist of the movie but he's screaming not this one too and he's telling the kid to breathe with him it is so good like this is a redemption story for the dad right this is him believing in god again but Everyone in the scene is crying, and poor Rory Culkin is suffocating. And as someone with asthma, it's scary even for half a second. And this kid doesn't have his medicine, so he literally has to be calmed down manually. And it's illustrated by the fact that he's gripping his overalls to the point where his knuckles are white and his dad is crying. You know, you don't get better than that. And as they're trying to calm down, to like cut off the lights, we have to save the batteries. And so we just fade to black. Not knowing if the kid would survive or not. I don't think I've ever seen a practical horror scene like that done so well. It's amazing. Because we know when he goes to sleep, somehow the nightmares get more real. Because we know we're going to be reintroduced further into how his wife was dead. I don't know. It's good character study. A really good character study. And we're, we're lucky that the right actors filled the right roles because this movie could have been so bad because I, I was thinking about it at one point I was when I was taking my notes there's long swaths of time where there's almost no dialogue it's all reaction shots to the actors 
It's well-established lines. It's using the middle third to draw your attention to something while something on the periphery is causing drama. Like, you know, Mel Gibson showing up to where his wife has been crushed to death in the Roman collar is so impactful because if he was in any other situation, he'd be giving some sort of last rites to this person. But instead, he can hardly speak because it's his wife. It's such good parallelism. And yet... You know, this movie is supposed to be about aliens. And this is after the X-Files was about to end. So, every, like, aliens are the zeitgeist at this point. So, anyway. What do you got for me, Matt? Well, eventually, day breaks. It's quiet. Yeah. I think they somehow get a TV message. The radio. Radio that the aliens are retreating. Right. That they've lost. They go up the stairs, get the medicine, and well, shit, guess who's still in the house? Yeah, l- l- let's, let's do this. Also, there's one thing I was incredibly unclear on, and you can help me with in a second. Um, but first, this kid's, like, incredible book. And I want to find the book this kid is reading. Because at one point, they're flipping through, and they're talking about, like, laser beam weapons. And the house that they're showing bursting into flames is their house. Yeah. Which is awesome. Um, That's very Shyamalanian. But the other part of it to me is uh, they turn on the radio at first and there's nothing. It's not even dead air, not even static, which the kid says, oh, that means they've controlled our global communication systems. So the next morning when they wake up and the radio works, that means the aliens are gone. And which um, Joaquin Phoenix says is they left in a hurry. We don't know why. It happened in the Middle East or something using an ancient technique. But we don't know what it is. Yeah, I could swear there was like a TV blip somewhere. You see a fire fire truck spraying water. Not in this. I mean, maybe I missed it. I was I taking could, notes. I was looking down, yeah, so maybe it was I, in I notes. Have, the first time you see a movie after 20 years, you realize that your memories aren't raw, aren't all wrong, but things are still different. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I when I watched it yesterday, the only fire truck I remember seeing was at his wife's um, accident. But um, anyway, one way or another, using ancient Indian magics or whatever nonsense, the aliens were somehow defeated. Uh, and Joaquin Phoenix says very specifically, they left so quick that their dead and wounded were left behind. And so the kid who's still suffocating, they take him upstairs. They're like, we better get him an, a shot of epinephrine, which is an EpiPen in case you have an allergic reaction, which isn't exactly how it happened. How happens, long but... would an asthma attack last? I thought they were okay, came and went quickly. If you have your medicine. If not, I mean, frankly, the kid probably would have died had he not fallen asleep. Um, asthma attacks can kill you. I mean, what happens is, I mean, to be blunt, hyperventilating, what you can do is essentially either A, you close your throat, depending on what caused the asthma attack, but B, you get so much oxygen in your system that your organs start to fail. And so what the albuterol does is it opens your lungs and theoretically returns normal breathing. And the epinephrine is even more so. It's essentially speed that you give to someone who's having an allergy attack. So if you ever see someone stabbing themselves in the thigh with an EpiPen, um, epinephrine is like, like, even if they're injured, they'll want to get up and run because it's essentially speed. But what it does is it's a vasodilator. So everything opens up at once and your heart starts flying. But that will prevent you from dying because what happens in an asthma attack is literally your lungs and your throat close up. Um, anyway, so they lie the kid on the bed to get the medicine and we see again through a reflection on the TV, which is still turned off 
a shadow and it's our alien at this point i don't think the cgi holds up too it does not um and it's funny because it's already a dude clearly in a suit and in a very stupid way, under his wrist, he has, like, a sprayer. Like, he's fucking Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. Yeah, he's got, like, some... They, they reference in the what the radio transmissions early on that the aliens have some kind of poison weapon they Gas can use. of some sort, right? I mean, they don't seem to have any weapons we see. I mean, so... Yeah, I'm going to do a invade a planet without any weapons where the atmosphere is poison, which we'll get to in more detail later. Who was planning this? But I mean, is this like an alien gang initiation? Well, no, but it's also H.G. Wells, right? They invade Earth with all these technology. What what, what could they not have predicted? But the common cold, right? Like, I mean, it's it's it is stupid. The twist of them, especially not being able to handle water when our world is eighty-five percent water or whatever. Yeah, you want to go to a rabbit hole? Go to the TV tropes page where they argue about. What amount of water would actually hurt them? Well, we see it's just a drizzle from a cup at one point. It dissolves the one dude's skin. Yeah, like water in the atmosphere versus get water dump, getting water dumped on you. Or, I mean, that's, you know, a good rainstorm will kill them all. I was going to say, it's funny. There's a reason why they didn't. I mean, Pennsylvania is not exactly a dry place. You know, it would have been more interesting if they were in Phoenix. <laughs> There's no rain to be found. But, like, and then we have the the... the Essentially, the end of this movie is the boy, whether or not he's going to die from the asthma attack, and Mel Gibson starts to pray again. And main t- and then we have the final flashback. Yeah, where we see how she died horribly, uh, being pinned between... Also, I'm sorry, man. Like, I know this is a movie, and you and I got into it a little bit on The Fugitive, whether or not he'd go to jail. How is M. Night out of jail for vehicular manslaughter? Because I looked, I looked at, the, oh, at the Pennsylvania vehicular manslaughter code. You have to be either drunk or driving recklessly. He was not committing He was asleep it. at the wheel. He fell asleep at the wheel. It wasn't like he was... So it's more critiquing Pennsylvania's law than well, anything. No, he didn't. Com- there was no intent for a crime at all. No one is guilty. That's well, the, well right. But in Georgia, sucks. yeah. But in Georgia, if you don't maintain your car and someone dies, you can still be charged with third degree manslaughter. So, like, let's say you don't take you know, care not, of your brakes and your brakes fail. Well, that's the point. If he had not done anything negligent or criminal, dude, falling asleep at the wheel is negligent. No, it's not. Dude, stop defending a murderer. It's not... Killing someone is not always murder. In fact, it's not always wrong. Oh, God. Anyway, so it says in the movie he went to jail, but it was only briefly. I don't... I just remember seeing him on the side of the road in a a cast looking like he got ganked up a bit. Anyway. I don't know why you get so stuck in the weeds about this stuff. Because you get stuck in the weeds, too. No, my point was... There's no punishment for a dude because, who killed a man's because wife. he didn't actually commit a crime. Now, I don't know how he could look him in the face ever again, but he's still technically... This is going to be dead air, isn't it? Yes, and I'm going to leave it in because you're defending this. I don't... Like, the point of the movie is that he was at fault and didn't receive punishment. No, I don't see that. The point of the movie seems to be that everything seemed to happen for a reason... That becomes obvious at the end. So, what did God want all this to happen to restore a fallen priest's faith? I guess. I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Some sort I was going to make a different point that like, it was supposed to be a, a thing about forgiveness, but you're saying he doesn't need to be forgiven because he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, but it seems like the whole everything was orchestrated, so everything happens at the end the way it does. So, is this like divine providence? 
I also don't know where you got your information because according to this, falling asleep is gross negligence and you can go to jail. There's no law against falling asleep while driving, but if you kill or wound someone, it is negligence. It is manslaughter. It is negligence. It is manslaughter. It is unintentional, but it is still... In Georgia, you would be... You're looking at the Georgia code, then. I was looking at the Pennsylvania. No, I was looking at any, everywhere in the country. It's, it's manslaughter in Pennsylvania. It's manslaughter in Wisconsin. It's manslaughter in California. It's not long, but punishment for prison is three years in jail in Georgia... 10 years in jail in Pennsylvania. In New Hampshire, it is another 10 years. It's my understanding because the law, looking at the law codes I saw, he had to be drunk, which he was not, or like if he's doing donuts, yeah, nail him. No, if he's unlawful, active, reckless, or grossly negligent manner, he can be found guilty as cause of the person. Up to seven years in prison, five years in prison, first degree manslaughter, and he can be on. Yeah, you can't fall asleep driving and kill someone and be okay. It's still murder. It's manslaughter. No, it's not. It's manslaughter. Why? Why are you mad? Because that's not what I saw. I don't know what you're looking at, but we get, we're getting really ridiculous here. Yeah, I'm looking at the code in Pennsylvania. But anyway, I don't know. My point was going to be the fact that he got out of prison so early and there was no retribution is why he doesn't believe in God. He wants there to be some sort of justice in the world. There is no justice in the world. And therefore, he's mad. That's why he loses faith. And in fact, I thought it was alluded to, but maybe I'm wrong, that the lawyer got him off on a technicality. And that's why he didn't end up with any punishment. Because according to the state of Pennsylvania, involuntary manslaughter is still a criminal act. That would have got him in jail. I don't remember any lawyers at all. I just feared he lost his faith because his wife died. That's kind of like the trope of the Hollywood atheist. You're an atheist because of tragedy. Which makes sense. It's not a trope. It makes sense. I know a lot of people who lose their faith because of tragedy. Trope makes it sound like it's only a literary device. You know, the whole thing here of, you know, the fact that he doesn't end up with his seven years in prison for vehicular homicide. Like, Mel Gibson wants revenge... But, like, what, what's interesting to me is how he returns to faith at the end, right? Like, that was what makes him a protagonist. To be a protagonist, you have to learn something and develop as a character over time. Those of you who are out there writing, if when you're writing, your characters don't grow in some way, not just become, become beefier or stronger or, well, I punched a guy, so now I'm the hero. You have to develop as a character. He develops as a character, and he finds his faith. Um... And we're not told that, we're shown it by him wearing his Roman collar and going back out into the world. It's the only time other than in the flashbacks he's wearing the Roman collar. And that makes it like, it, it, it matters. It's, it's powerful. And I think it works well. And in the meantime, Uncle Merrill beats the alien to death with a bat. Oh yeah, you brought that up. I, I thought, yeah. Swing away. Because yeah, that was his away. wife's last words was swing away. So the whole thing is like divine providence. Everything was being set up just so, so this happens. I will say too, like reading the Bible, I think her last words change every time we see it. <laughs> because at one point, she, her last words are about her son. At one point, the last words are about the daughter. At one point, the last words are about the uncle. Um, and the last words we see are none of those, <laughs> which is fine. Um... I mean, again, I, I give them my credit here. I believe it's supposed to intentionally be a reference, a biblical reference, but, you know, whatever. 
Um, at the end of the day, uh, the kid doesn't die, you know, like but, Tiny Tim. Because his throat was closed up at the point the alien's poison didn't affect him. Because at one point he gets a face full of it. Kind of, yeah. Um, and then Meryl beats an alien to death with a bat. And uh, the girl appears again at the end somehow. Um, we don't really see her. Uh, little girl? Yeah, she doesn't do anything in the end, right? Uh, I think... I. I mean, I, I figured, I thought that she was at, that she, Mel Gibson, and the brother were out in the out in the yard while Uncle Merrill um because well, he takes I mean, out the trash. It might be an alien, but we still don't want to watch <laughs> Uncle Merrill beat a kid, beat someone to death. Yeah, we don't actually you don't see the the final blow. We just see the bat breaks, it falls, the water spills on it under the camera lens, and. And he and at that point, Mel Gibson is outside with the two kids, and the one kid is suffocating still, mm-hmm. because he has not been able to get the medicine yet. And Mel Gibson is praying because what you said, as though it's I mean, it's probably what happened. We're not really told, right? Um, but Mel Gibson starts to pray that his throat was closed. God, don't let him die. Mm-hmm. The, the poison could not have gotten into him because it was closed. And you know, then the kid wakes up. And essentially, he repeats the initial establishing shot of panning through the window and looking around the house. And that's it. That's signs, other than the fact that it pans to winter and he's wearing the Roman collar and the cross is back on the wall and he has new bed sheets. New bed sheets. Well, for some reason, I thought it was that he had married the, the, the sheriff lady. Hmm. Uh, but that's not there. You know, we don't have to write fan fiction for a 20-year-old movie that doesn't need I it. dare you to write fan fiction for a 20-year-old year old I, movie. I have dignity and self-respect. I would not write fan fiction. Um, <laughs> but he's wearing his Roman collar, and he doesn't say a word. It's, it's incredibly well done. He just puts on his watch and walks out of the movie. I love this film. What about you? What are your final thoughts? I didn't love it. I think you got much more emotionally invested in it than I did, which is probably a good thing. You feel more and better. Yeah. But it was well done and spooked me out at times, which means it probably break most people. It's well acted. I mean, a lot of Shyamalan will get a lot of good people to work for him. It's well done. And I think it's, I mean, we talked about his decline later. That does not set in until later. This is one of the good ones. Yeah. Really good. I don't know which of his first three movies I like the best. Um, I think of the three of them. Unbreakable is the one they made a sequel to, which I think it deserved it. It's an interesting world to live in. It's a shame that um, Bruce Willis is out of acting because I think they could have made more of them. It's a really interesting idea of a ground-level superhero. Um, But this movie is very tight. It's well-written. It questions a lot of moral ideas, um, you know, not only just whether or not there's a God, but also what does it mean if you believe in something wholeheartedly and it falls apart? How do you deal with a, a crisis when the world is falling apart and you're supposed to be, you know, the person who has the answers? Because if anyone has the answers in a crisis, it's supposed to be a religious figure. And it questions whether or not there's justice in the world. And, you know, um, my buddy... Uh, Dr. Kyle uh, Kaufman, who now works at the JPL, uh, always said good sci-fi is supposed to make you question whether or not our morality exists in a galaxy far, far and away. Um, This does that incredibly well, but it's not beating you over the head. If you have to explain that a character is good or moral with, like, a cheap sex scene, you failed. 
This is all subtle and in the details, and I think this movie gets it. And I don't know how he was able to get this movie done, because like Matt said, it's slam-packed with good actors. But yeah, this is a great place to start the month, because as Matt said earlier on, it all goes down from here. Anyway, uh, with that in mind, uh, we have four more M. Night Shyamalan movies come up. Um, and for those of you who have listened to the first two episodes know, uh, we're going to try to let you know what the movies are in advance so you can watch along with us. Unfortunately, uh, because of M. Night Shyamalan, uh, the way he kind of does this stuff, uh, he's his own producer, and a lot of this is kind of independently produced. So it's not always easy to find stuff that streams. Uh, and signs, of course. Uh, followed by Lady in the Water, followed by The Village, followed by The Happening. Of those four, only The Happening is streaming on HBO Max. Uh, so you're going to have to and find there is these. no justice in the world. Well, unfortunately for us, I mean, actually, to me, what kind of sucks, uh, this is the 20th anniversary of what I think is a pretty good movie. There's no fanfare. I would love a 4K Blu-ray release. There isn't even an American Blu-ray release of any sort. Yeah, you'd think if if he he was going salvaging his career from I think the Nadir that was after Earth, you'd think he'd get the better release. I mean, is it because Mel Gibson? No one likes Mel Gibson anymore. Well, but Mel Gibson was nominated for an Academy Award a year ago. Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah, or two years ago now. Two years. Yeah, ago. yeah more than that. I think it was more than that. No, no. But when was the actual Oscar ceremony? I think the movie came out three years ago, but the ceremony was two years ago. Anyway, regardless, regardless. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, M. Night has done a lot of stuff more recently that's easily available. Um, but we're talking classic, vintage, 20-year-old Shyamalan, where he's still someone who's The fine wine that this aged. And <laughs> some of it aged better than others, Matt. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find that out later. Yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for subscribing. Thank you for doing all that you do. Thank bye. you for letting us entertain you. Yeah, bye, guys. Season 9 of Myopia Movies is produced by Nick Hoffman and Daniel Suttis. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman and stars Daniel Suttis and Matt Quinn. The theme music is Surf Shimmy by Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com and is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and review us wherever podcasts are found. Thanks, guys. <laughs>